And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. This morning is, of course, uh, Monday as we get ready to wrap up the uh, the month of April already. And man, what a gorgeous weekend we had. I, you know... Here in Houston, anyway, and Austin, Texas, has been just just great weather here over the last few days. Don't get this very often, but uh, we'll take it. It's very nice. Uh, it's payback it, for February. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, February. That was eons ago. You know, when we we're frozen into our house. Gorgeous weather outside. Uh, a couple of things to get into this morning, um, in particular, as we do get ready to head into the month of May. Now, we get ready to wrap up the seasonally strong months of the year. Now, typically, we have the best returns of the year in the months of November, December, January, February, March, April, and a little bit of May. And then we get into the seasonally week period of the year, which tends to be the summer months. Now, going back in history, if we go all the way back to you know the, the 1870s and start tracking returns of markets, if you had invested only in the seasonally strong six months of the year versus the summer, basically just got in in November, got out in, in May, your return, you would have basically captured virtually all the returns of the markets. Very little of the over long-term returns of the market have occurred during the summer. Now, does that mean that every summer is negative? Of course not. Um, there's been some very strong positive summers, and, and that's happened in the past. But more often than not, summers tend to be a bit wishy-washy as they were last summer. We had a couple of 10% corrections in August and September of last year. So, you know, those things typically tend to occur during summer months. And we've talked about the fact that, yes, while we have the sell signal in the markets right now, which suggests that prices are going to be somewhat limited in the near term, um, that we still expect another rally into summer and that summer will probably be where we're going to pick up a little bit bigger correction in the markets for a variety of reasons. One, because of the bigger extensions of markets from long-term means, but also because the fact that our weekly buy signals are in place and those won't turn into sell signals until later this summer. Um, how do I know they'll do that? Because they oscillate and, and we're currently on a buy signal. We're working our way up to the upper end of that range and that will eventually turn over and we will get a sell signal probably sometime around June or July. Now, that's just the way markets work. Prices oscillate back and forth. And so it's easy to kind of understand how these dynamics work and adjust risk and portfolios accordingly. And right now, there's not been a lot of concern. In fact, you know, on Friday, we had a very, very strong day on the, in the markets. But, you know, again, have not broken out to new highs. And as suggested, we've been talking about for the last week or so that the markets would likely, with this sell signal in place that we have right now, that we said, hey, you know what? Um, it's likely the markets are just going to consolidate here for the for at least a very short period of time because as we have the sell signal in place, money flows tend to be very strong. And in fact, on Friday, we had some of the strongest money flows on a single day that we've seen um, basically in the last year or so. Very strong day of money being put into markets, people chasing stocks, and we saw a lot of that on Friday. And so we had we had a nice lift on, on Friday. But again, the market failed to actually break out to a new high. So again, just continuing this consolidation process in the 
near term. That's again nothing to do here, nothing to worry about. We talked about the fact that um, you know uh, Friday before last and last Monday we had just taken some of our index trading positions off that we had put back on in 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 late March. We put those positions on and captured that rally, and so we just took those positions off. But really, the rest of the portfolio we're not doing a lot with right now. Um, because there's just not a lot to do. Stocks really are just kind of kind of milling around here, so to speak, in a lot of cases. And particularly as we go through earnings season, there's a lot of support for stocks because of the earnings being announced. We got some big announcements this week. Tesla is reporting after the bell today, so we're going to hear from them. Of course, the the thing you want to watch for on Tesla, if you're if you're a Tesla bull and long Tesla stock is how much are they getting in terms of their electric vehicle tax credits. Now, that's an important number. Should be somewhere around $400 million. The importance of that number is, is that without those tax credits, Tesla is not profitable. So again, that's a very big component of the income and profits of Tesla. So watch that number in particular today. Of course, also watch their sales and outlook. That's going to be more important as well, um, particularly the issue of sales in China. So that's going to be uh, you know, kind of some of the important comments to be made by Elon Musk today when they start talking about their actual earnings. Um, the other big uh, company this week is Apple. And actually, we've got a lot of companies this week, but Apple's going to be another big thing because of basically their impact and new, new, new targets and, of course, their new production. Of course, concerns over semiconductor chips. What is that look like you know this whole semiconductor backlog has not only affected you know everything from computers to automobiles but again it's impacting the ability of companies to deliver product and to get product so this is these are kind of some of the things to kind of watch for and again companies have, are, are being rewarded for getting good earnings but not to the magnitude that you would expect and that's because a lot of the prices of this have already been baked into the market so we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning but if you take a look at you know, a variety of metrics in terms of the price of the market versus expectations of sales, expectation of earnings growth, et cetera, markets have pretty much priced in. This advance in the market that we've seen here over the last year in particular uh, from the March 20 lows has been quite unprecedented. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's been a very, very large move, particularly given the backdrop of a very weak economic growth environment and given the backdrop of really earnings growth that is still subpart of what was expected back at the beginning of 2020. So, you know, there's, and I talked to, I did an interview and it's on the website now. So if you go to our website at realinvestmentadvice.com and there's an interview uh, on our front page with Daniel Lakaya. And we talked specifically about this, that the markets are pricing in an economic expansion. Now, that's an important term. When we use the term expansion, that means that the economy is growing and is getting bigger, right? Um, and it's also expected to sustain that expansionary growth rate. And so that's a very important term. When we say economic expansion, that's what the markets are pricing in. But really what's happening is, is that we're not expanding the economy. We're recovering back to where we were pre-pandemic. Now, that's an important that's an important statement because we're expecting very, very strong growth rates this year in the economy, but a lot of that is simply just a recovery of reopening the economy. Now, the question will be is can we maintain that growth rate, right? So an, expand, an, an, an economic expansion 
is something that is not only organic, so that is the underlying activity of the economy, but also sustainable in that we continue that growth going forward. But that's not really the expectation. If you take a look at any of the analyst estimates right now about expectations of economic growth over the next few years, that growth rate in the economy isn't going to be 6%. And it's going to very quickly drop back down to around one and three quarters to two percent going forward. Now, that's not an economic expansion. And, you know, when you're running along at two percent growth rates, that is barely the rate of growth required just to absorb population growth over time. So this is going to be an important facet uh, when we begin talking about valuations and things here in the future is really what is the underlying support for that earnings growth and just how strong will it be and can it support valuations at current levels. Be right back after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. We've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Don't go away. Be right back on The Real Investment Show, realinvestmentadvice.com. When they dance, they come, I'm telling And the voice they take, I turn better. They all want me, they can't help me. So they all come and dance beside me. Move with me, chat with me. And if you're good, they'll take you home with me. Dale la cuerpa, alegría, macarena. Por supuesto, dale la alegría, cual son buenas. Dale la cuerpa, alegría, macarena. Hey, macarena, all right. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show. So it's morning 617 as we kind of uh, get this uh, Monday underway. Yes, it's Monday again, I know. Seems like it was just Friday. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so uh, a couple of things to get into this morning, I, you know, that I kind of want to talk about here is, is we've kind of got a few topics to get into. But one is I want to, uh, you know, kind of pick up on what we were just talking about here is that you know, the expectations for an economic recovery are well ahead of what we should probably expect in reality. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Is one is that, look, well, you know, we are definitely recovering from an artificial shutdown of the economy. And, and that's the, really the big question, right, is the shutdown of the economy, you know, that caused, you know, uh, you know a lot of impact on markets. We, you know, a lot of businesses shut down. Um, you know, you know, thousands upon thousands of small businesses and restaurants closed. They're not coming back, even though the economy is. And then on the other side of this, we've also created a lot of distortions because we've thrown money kind of willy-nilly at people. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine over the weekend who owns restaurants. 
And, you know, part of this new Biden stimulus bill is support for restaurants. And these are grants being given to restaurants to get back in business. And, and we could argue that that's probably a good thing, right? Well, interesting thing, though, is, is that his restaurants in particular are doing fine. But, you know, he's going to pick up several million dollars of these bailout programs for his restaurants that he doesn't really need, right? But this is just part of the deal. And this is, this is the problem when we try to bail out things without really understanding what the needs are. And that's okay. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, go good for him. He's going to have a few million extra dollars in his coffers that, you know, taxpayer money, right? But, you know, when we start talking, and this is something I'm writing an article on this right now about the differential between capitalism and corporatism. You know, there's lots of angst about capitalism, right? Millennials hate capitalism. And we're going to get into that in the show this morning as well. <laughs> but, you know, the, but corporatism is a function of what's going on in the markets today. It's not capitalism isn't broken, right? We've just stopped allowing capitalism to function. And we've decided that people that run our government know better than us about how the economy works. You know, capitalism as a system has a Darwinian function to it. And you, and you saw this real time during the shutdowns. And particularly with restaurants. More so with restaurants than anywhere else did you see this Darwinian aspect of capitalism. And that's the function of being able to adapt and survive. Companies that were able to adapt and survive, they went to doing mostly takeout and delivery, they survived. Companies that couldn't do that quickly, they couldn't quickly make that adaptation or refuse to do so, went out of business. They went extinct. So we started throwing money at all these businesses saying, hey, don't fire anybody. Don't do this, right? Just, just keep these people on. Well, that, that kept them around for a little bit and they eventually got fired because there was no business. They didn't adapt. So is it a bad thing that, you know, we shut down the economy and companies went out of business? Yeah, it's terrible, right? People lost their livelihoods over this. Question is, is should we have shut down the economy? The answer is no. Because the economy has also got a Darwinian function to it. And people will make the adaption. Don't, you, you apply the rules, right? You, you don't shut down the economy. You don't say, hey, you can't travel. You can't do anything. You can't do this, do that. You apply the rules, right? Wear a mask, so forth and so on. Social distance, great. Keep working. Companies will adapt and survive. You could literally today say, you know what? There's no more mask mandates. There's no more uh, separate social distancing, et cetera. It is solely up to you, right? Businesses will say, you know what? In order to make my clients comfortable, my patrons comfortable, I'm going to keep the dividers up. I'm still going to require a mask. I'm still going to do these things because I want to make sure that everybody feels safe and secure in my business. That's their choice. But they would make that decision based upon their clientele. 
So again, this is the this is the process of capitalism. But when we don't allow capitalism to work, we develop what's called corporatism, which is now what's happened in the economy. And we 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 conflate these two terms. We don't like corporations because they're making money hand over fist and they're not sharing the wealth. There's nothing in capitalism that says anybody has to share wealth. If you think that wealth should be divided equitably from corporate income, that's socialism. Okay, And once you have socialism, you don't have capitalistic prosperity. I know. We can't also expect the government to mandate these things to fix it. Right? If you want to change corporatism, if you want to fix corporatism, you have the choice of doing that. And this is a beautiful thing about capitalism. If you want to fix corporatism and you want to, to stop companies like Apple, and uh, let, let's, let's step back. How about Facebook and Twitter, right? We're concerned about how much interference they have in our daily lives with our personal information and so forth and so on, right? They make billions of dollars. The executives are screaming rich, right? We don't like that. Okay, stop using Facebook, stop using Twitter. Guess what? If you stop using those social media platforms, they don't have any revenue, they go out of business, you solve the corporatism problem. But how are you, how are you going to complain about the failures of capitalism if you can't get on Facebook and Twitter? See, here's the problem. You know, we want to complain about these things, but we're not willing to sacrifice and give up the things in our life that make us convenient or happy or whatever it is, right? If you don't like that, the fact that Apple has huge stock buybacks to benefit their corporations and they don't share the wealth with their employees, stop buying Apple products. There's other manufacturers out there. But you can't give up your iPhone, can you? So you can't not give up the things that create the capitalistic corporatism that you're so worried about and depend on government to fix it. Because what you wind up with is something that is not capitalism and is a whole lot worse than the corporatism you're bitching about. But this all, this all kind of goes back to this point about where we are in the cycle and what we've talked about in terms of this economic growth. We're about to go into a blackout period right now for corporations because they're announcing earnings. So stock buybacks are going to be somewhat limited. That's been a major driver of this rally this year. Corporate stock buybacks have hit a record this year. And this is a huge benefit to, to executives and insiders of corporation that own stock that is granted to them by the company as part of their compensation package. This is a throw off from back when Bill Clinton tried to fix CEO compensation by limiting the tax deductibility of corporate CEO salaries, right? Again, a government fix gone wrong because as soon as the government tried to fix CEO corporate uh, CEO compensation, Wall Street CEOs got with the Wall Street their Wall Street buddies and said, "Hey, how can we come up with a better scheme to pay me?" And they said, "Well, how about stock buybacks?" And they go, "That's a great idea." <laughs> and so we went to stock-based compensation. So you know, whenever you try to have the government fix one of the problems you don't like, you get an offshoot that is often generally worse. Almost, almost, almost always it's worse. But 
you know, this is this is the environment we live in. And, you know, when we talk about markets, right, you know, we we're talking about just a second ago is that we've got record I mean, just record flows of money going into stocks right now, right? We don't, we don't want, you know, we, we hate these things about capitalism. Man, these executives are all getting rich. But, hey, let's throw money into the market as fast as we can. There's been more. We talked about this last week. There's been more money going into the stock market in the last five months than the last 12 years combined. And as I showed you just a minute ago um, in the last segment, we had we had a record level of flows go into stocks in one day. Friday, right? Our money flow indicator was like through the roof. That's what's going on here, right? There's this rush to get money into markets because of this fear of missing out, and we just keep seeing the, this kind of this record push, and and that's led to this very divergent. Market, you know, coming out of the March 2020 and, and March 2020 was a correction, not a bear market. And this is a big, you know, this is a big misnomer that's put out by the financial media. I've got a chart up here. It says the average of the past eight bear markets. And it shows the previous seven bear markets compared to the March 20. March 20 was a 30% decline. Historically, the statistical measure of a bear market has been 20%, but we've never had markets as deviated from the long-term moving averages as they were in March of 2020. So the decline was going to be bigger. It was a correction and not a bear market for two reasons primarily. One, we never broke the long-term uptrend from the 2009 lows. In other words, the price trend of the market never changed from bullish to bearish. And secondly, the recovery back to new highs was in a very, very short period of time, more coincident with a correction than a bear market. So for all intents and purposes, really March was a correction and the rally back has been extremely sharp coming out of that correction. And again, this gets back to the problem of valuations, the global value of equities right now as at a level that is 28% from the previous high when the economy was running in absolutely perfect condition. Be right back after the break. in any place, anytime, at realinvestmentadvice.com. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. I want to be the very best that no one ever was. Catch them as my real test. Train them as my cause. I will travel. Welcome back. So this morning it is uh, 6.33 as we get this uh, edition of the show underway. So talking a little bit a second ago about this, you know, problem where 
the value of the market currently is now 28% higher than it was at the peak of the market in February of 2020. And, 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 and here's the important thing about this. Remember, in the peak of 2020, you know, we were operating at all cylinders, right? The economy was booming. Trade war was done, blah, 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 blah. And we were at record highs in the market. Earnings growth is expected to be $173 a share at the end of 2021 because of the tax cuts. And today, the global value of equities are 20% higher than they were then. And earnings for the end of 2021 are expected to be about $20 lower than they were in February of 2020. So... Markets are well ahead of themselves, and, and this is, you know, kind of one of the issues that we're talking about. So, so one of the important parts here, and this is an article that's on our website today, is talking a little bit about because of where markets are today valuation-wise, it suggests, and all measures suggest, that markets will have low future returns down the road. And that's an important point because people get this confused quite often. They go, you know what? Valuations are high, and that means I'm going to have near zero rates of returns over the decade, next decade. So I'm just going to get out of the market. Yeah, you, you could do that. But that's not what low future returns actually means. But here, let me, let me, let, let's start out with a couple of metrics here to explain this in more detail. So if we take a look at, you know, four of the most popular valuation measures, and we've, we've written some articles on this in the past, both Michael Leibowitz and I have, have done this. But if you take a look at price to sales, Tobin's Q, CAPE ratio, which is uh, kind of a, uh, a valuation, price to earnings valuation using 10-year earnings, kind of smooths out the ups and downs from one year to the next. And market cap to GDP, uh, that's Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett's favorite indicator, which is the total market capitalization relative to, to economic growth. Now, let me explain why these are important, right? Price to sales. So a company at the top line, that's where they report sales or revenue. At the bottom line is earnings. And that's what we all look at when we go to buy stocks, right? We look at earnings. But we fudge those earnings. About 75% of earnings are accounting gimmicks, only about 25% of them are actual revenue growth. So we do a lot of manipulation at the bottom line to make earnings look better than they are. So if we really want to know what are we paying for, look at sales and how much we're paying per sales, you know, on price per sales. And that's at a level that we have never seen before in history, even in the dot-com uh, com peak. Cape ratio, right? So... Robert Schiller did a thing where he smooths earnings over a 10-year period, gets rid of the ups and down volatility. That ratio, second highest level on record. People don't like that valuation because it suggests stocks are overvalued, but that's the way it is. Tobin's Q has nothing to do with valuations. It's the replacement cost for a business. If I was going to rebuild my business today, what would it cost me today to do it? That valuation, highest level on record. Market cap to GDP. If the economy is where corporations get their revenue from, i.e. sales, 
right? 70% of the economy is consumption. So it's what you and I buy and spend. That's where revenue comes from. Then theoretically and actually going back through history, there's a very close correlation between the appreciation of stock prices and earnings over time relative to the economy. Absolutely as it should be. Right now, market cap, the value of stocks relative to the economy is about two to one. Highest level in history. So when we take, no matter how we measure the valuations of the markets, things that have something to do with earnings, things that have nothing to do with earnings, they all tell us the same thing. We're way overpaying for, for stocks. Yes, Lance, but it's the Fed. It's, it's all the monetary liquidity. You're right. Doesn't change the fact that we're way overpaying for value. You know, people buying a house today in the economy are going to have to wait a very long time to get the value of that house price back because we will go through a down cycle in house prices. You'll have to wait for the recovery, but that's what happens when you overpay for something, right? That means that the capital appreciation on buying a home today is going to be near zero or negative over the next decade as we go through a cycle. Not surprisingly, if you overpay for stocks, future value of returns over the next decade are likely going to be close to zero. And that's what the data tells us. Going all the way back to 1900, that's what the data tells us over and over and over again, no matter how we measure it, no matter how we look at it, returns are going to be close to zero. But does that mean, now here's the important point, does that mean that returns are going to be zero every single year? No, that's not what that means. What it means is, is that there's going to be one or two really nasty years along the way that's going to drop your returns down to zero or two percent. And, I, I, you know, if you're watching our live stream right now, I actually have an example up of what it means to have a two percent annualized rate of return over a 10 year period. And I did a couple of different measures. I, I did one called the seven percent promise, which is the seven percent annual increase in stock prices. That's what you never get. <laughs> And then we get the double dip, the middle crash, and the back end blowout, right? So the double dip says we're going to get some good returns, and then along the way, we're going to have a couple of little nasty declines. So in year one, we get 8% return. Market's up 11% in year two. Year three, we're down 25%. It's terrible. Up six, up five, up three, down 11, up nine, up eight, up six. And see, those two years, just those two down years, you'd say, yeah, hey, no big deal, right? What was your average rate of return? Probably five, six percent, right? Nope, two. All right, well, how about just having a crash in the middle? Eight, 11, nine, six, four years in a row, we're cranking out returns, 10% average rate, you know, pushing right there. Uh, yeah, you have a small bear market, 46% decline. Oh, that can't happen. Oh, it only happened twice a century already, but okay. Uh, year five, 46% decline, then you're up three, six, nine, eight, six, and your average rate of return is two. How about just having a bad bear market right at the end of a decade? Eight, 11, nine, six, five, three, six, nine. You're up every single year, right? Doing great. 143% down year in year nine. You're up six in year 10. Your total return for the next decade, for that whole decade, 2%. The point is, no matter how you want to arrange the numbers, right? If you throw a couple of bear market years in that 10-year period, you're going to have 
much lower rates of return than that 7% that you were promised. And when you have an extreme overvaluation of markets, this is what tends to happen. It doesn't mean, and this is the whole the point of the conversation, is it doesn't mean you go sit in cash for a decade. What it means is that you need to be aware that there is an elevated risk of a major market decline at some point between 20 and 30 to 40 percent or more. It's happened. And this is particularly the case when valuations are as expensive as they are now. In fact, no matter how you measure the market, you're in the top 90 98th percentile of valuations really kind of across most measures. And so when we take a look, you know, at an example of the market, right? And we say, look, where are we today? Just using some basic corrections, uh, you know, if you, there's a, a mathematical measure called Fibonacci. And Fibonacci cycles, mathematical cycles show up everywhere in nature. Um, we've talked about this previously. And, you know, it, it's something that... Is, an, is a mathematical fact. And price corrections in markets follow Fibonacci retracements. Don't ask me why, it just occurs. <laughs> just like it explains how many sunflower seeds are in the sunflower and you know the radius of a conch shell. I mean, it's just, it shows up everywhere. Don't ask me why. The distance from your fingertip to your elbow is a Fibonacci scale, right? It's just, there it is. It's everywhere. 23% retracement takes you, you know, back to where you were pre-2018. 38% retracement takes you back to the 2020 lows. 50% retracement takes you back to 2015. That's well within the norm of what we saw in both 2008 as well as what we saw in the dot-com crash. 61% retracements of markets are not uncommon. That would take you all the way back to the peak of the market in 2008. The point is, is that no matter how you cut this, valuations are very important. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have a zero rate of return every year. But when markets are as extremely deviated and extended as they are today, something occurs. What occurs? Who knows? Nobody knows what causes these events, an exogenous geopolitical event, a credit-related event, failure of a major financial institution, recession. These things happen. We never know what it is or what's going to cause it. But when it occurs, it causes this market to flee the value of equities and the excess returns. And that creates the event that leads to low returns over the next decade. That's how it happens. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. You read the whole article. All the graphs are there for you as well. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last lunch and learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, <coughs> and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at Real Investment. No masks required. The Real Investment Show.
show. It was funny this morning. I came in and Brent always puts, uh, always have Brent always does a job of putting notes on my screen for the show just in case I run out of things to talk about. If ever. <laughs> Which happens. It does happen <laughs> from time to time. Not often, but every now and yeah. then. Yeah. My wife says I won't shut up either. Just to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. When I'm at home, I don't talk a whole lot because we spend so much time talking here. <laughs> And so my wife says, how was your day? I'm like, it was fine. How was your day? So she'll go off on a long, you know, I get the, I get the long 45-minute dissertation about her day, which is fine, completely fine. And uh, But, you know, I don't talk a whole lot at the house because we talk so much here. I'm just like, when I go home, I'm like done talking for a while. Um, but it was interesting because my son went to hang out with some friends this weekend. Now, he's he's getting older now. Um, he went to go hang out with some friends at the lake and he came home and he was telling me his whole story of events and he had a little bit of a clash with one of the parents and and you know it's 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 interesting because you know this really comes down to this kind of this generational this generational gap and the clash was a little bit over kind of political ideologies and i you know i've just tried to raise my kids to be very independent um, I did political talk for a long time. My kids don't listen to the show. <laughs> so we've done financial talk forever, but I don't really bring it home. Um, I, you know, I do this for part of my job and then when I go home, like I said, I spend time with my family and, you know, we don't talk, you know, we don't wa- you know, we don't watch a lot of news at home. We don't do that. We just kind of focus on ourselves. Right. And, you know, so I've never had a huge, I've never, you know, sat down and, and tried to direct my kids in a direction of you need to think this way. I let them to try to do this and you may agree with me or not. And it's, it's quite all right. But what I've tried to do is teach them to be independent, self-supporting, intelligent, and, you know, focusing on things like making sure they're studying and making good grades. And my kids are very smart. They make very good grades in school. They're well-behaved children. They don't get in trouble. Um, they, you know, participate in athletic sports and they do very well at that um you know but it's interesting that they've developed their own attitude about and they don't agree with a lot of what's going on in the economy right now and and they and every now and then you know every now and then i'll ask them about what do you think about you know um you know this issue or that issue and they're like god don't agree with it and it's just an interesting, it's an interesting comment. They're developing their own way, but by because I make them work and pay their own bills, which was one of the funny things over the weekend because my son was complaining he just got paid and then he was upset about all the taxes that were taken out of his bill. And I was like, well, there you go. And he's like, well, where'd all this money go to? I go, well, you know, your, your brother who's in Germany right now just got a $1,400 check because the government's passing out these stimmy bills. And he's like, so you mean to tell me that my tax dollars just went to my brother who lives in Germany? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he didn't like that too much. <laughs> but they're getting it, right? And like, you know, it's, I, I make them, <laughs> they don't like when the bill collector comes on the 15th and makes them pay for their car and their insurance, right? They've got all this money saved up in their account from working and all of a sudden it disappears. They don't like that. But hey, guess what? It's the way, the way life works. And so they're getting the idea, you know, 
at the age of 17, they're getting the idea that life isn't exactly as easy as, you know, they kind of think it should be, right? So they, they're developing their own ideas about conservatism versus liberalism versus democratism, you know, through their own experiences, right? This is, and they're developing this. And it's interesting because they don't buy into a lot of the mainstream wokeness that's going on. <laughs> so Brent put this thing up on my, on my screen today. It says, it's really cool to be alive in America at this point in history because it's like the collapse of the Roman Empire, but with Wi-Fi. <laughs> and it's kind of true. And it, and it dovetailed with something Bill Maher said over the weekend. Now, look, I don't agree with Bill Maher hardly ever. And the fact that you can mark this down on your calendar, this is a point in history where I've actually agreed with Bill Maher. And what this really tells you is, is that, you know, and I've said this before on the show, is that I think the majority of Americans, I think if you go ask the majority of Americans, they are mostly right or slightly right or slightly left of center. You know, most, most individuals that I run into, they have conservative views and liberal views. In other words, they're, they don't like the debt and the deficits, but they're okay with... Um, freedom of choice, right? Everybody kind of has views that split the aisle on both sides. And it's interesting because over the last, you know, four years, eight years in particular, there are groups in this country that have gotten so far right and so far left, they even extend past, you know, even the more ardent Democrats and Republicans, right? They're just, you know, they're on the far left and far right. And that's really what we hear about a lot in the media. And it was interesting because Bill Maher, who's very left, right? I mean, he's, he's very much a Democrat, and, and I don't agree with a lot of his views. And, and that's just my personal, and again, nothing between you and I or anybody else is just my personal beliefs versus his personal beliefs. We don't agree on a lot of things, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's what makes America great. We, don't, we, we, can, disagree, we can agree to disagree, and we can all live together and be happy and healthy and, and have business together and be profitable, and that's fine. Right. That's that's what America is supposed to be. But even he hit some points this weekend in, in his monologue that touched me because I see this with my kids and my kids are different than the group he's talking about. He's specifically talking about the 18 to 34 year old demographic. Now, my kids are 17. Actually, my daughter just turned 18. So they're right on the cusp of this, but what he's talking about is something that my kids absolutely ardently disagree with. And again, I didn't teach them this. They've developed this. Well, I'm sure they adopted it through osmosis, so to speak, but, <laughs> but they don't agree with these views. But this is important. He says, in India... Young people touch old people's feet to show reference. In Japan, there's a national respect for the age date. Now, what he's talking about is the differential between 18 and 34-year-old demographic versus baby boomers. And, you know, this whole millennial generation has picked up this attitude of, okay, boomer, yeah, well, whatever you say, whatever, you're old, you don't get it, you're out of touch, right? So this is what he's talking about. 
You know the reason why advertisers in this country love the 18 to 34-year-old demographic? Because they are the most gullible. A third of people under 35 say they're in favor of abolishing the police, not defunding, but doing away with a police force altogether, which is less of a policy position and more of a leg tattoo. 36% of millennials think it might be a good idea to try communism. Look, much of the world has tried it. I know most millennials think that doesn't count because they weren't alive when it happened. Here's, and here's the key point about this. Millennials think that because they weren't alive when it happened that, hey, well, you know, maybe we should try it and we can probably do it better. That's the attitude, right? I know most millennials think it doesn't count because they weren't alive when it happened, but it did happen. And there are people around the world who remember it. Pining for communism is like pining for Betamax or MySpace. So when you say you're old and you don't get it, get what? Abolish the police, the Border Patrol, capitalism, cancel Lincoln. No, I get it. The problem is I don't get what you're saying or that I'm old. I get what you're saying. And, and yes, I'm old, right? So I do understand what you're saying, right? And, then, and this is me talking to my kids. My kids tell me these things like, oh, dad, you don't understand. It's like, no, I really do understand. Trust me, I know what you do when you leave the house. I was a teenager, right? We all did this, right? You know, name one, you know, don't sit there and tell me you didn't sneak out of your house when you were a teenager and you didn't do this and you didn't do that, right? Because you did it just like I did it and everybody else did it, right? We all did it. And kids look at you like, you never did that. I'm sneakier than you. No, you're not. <laughs> and I have you on Life360. I know right where your ass is. <laughs> so don't tell me you're over there when I can look at my phone and know right where you are. So the point is, is that, you know, nobody's tried, you know, millennials aren't in this new age where they're trying something all new. We've done all these things before, right? We, we did the whole hippie run back in the 60s and the 70s, right? Free love, sex, rock and roll. We did all that. And there were consequences for doing it. LSD. Um, we've done all these things before. And the outcomes weren't great. And not maybe we didn't try them in the U.S., but they've been tried elsewhere in the world. And the outcomes weren't great. So no, it's not that we don't get it. And let me just quote from you from what Bill Maher said. No, I get it, quote from Bill Maher. The problem isn't that I don't get what you're saying or that I'm old. The problem is that your ideas are stupid. <laughs> We've done all these things before. The outcomes are not good. And the thing and the reason that baby boomers are telling you, hey, don't do this, is the same reason I tell my kids, don't do that. Because if you do that, the outcome for you is not going to be good. And I love you and I care about you and I want you to be happy and healthy and productive in society. And I don't want you to go through the pain that other people have gone through experiencing the same thing. So don't repeat other people's mistakes. Learn from your elders because they've done it. They've made these mistakes, or at least they've seen it work and not work in real time. Wraps the show for the day. Have a great one. See you tomorrow right here on the Technical Speaking Tuesday, right here on the Real Investment Show. Have an awesome day. Get daily investment news you can use. Deliver to the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.